good issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here. Happy to be introducing you to this week's Sunday Chops. I recorded this one ages ago and I've only just got round to editing because that's who I am as a human being. But the good thing about that is I'd forgotten just how smart and interesting Francesca Peacock is and how much she loves her subject. Francesca's book, Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish, is out now and I would suggest that you give it a read. If you don't know who Margaret, also the Duchess of Northumberland, was, I've borrowed this from Francesca's author's note. She was one of the first women writers to publish in English under her own name and wrote about subjects far from typical for women of the period. In her books, science, philosophy and natural history abound across the page alongside cross-dressing female warriors, feminist heroines and tracts about the sexist nature of marriage. She gave birth to the genre of science fiction and developed her theories about the nature of the universe all while living a resolutely non-traditional life with her husband and navigating the political difficulties of the English Civil War. Cavendish had a front row seat to the upheavals and dramas of the 17th century. Her house was attacked during the Civil War and many of her family members died in the fighting. She went into exile with Queen Henrietta Maria and she returned triumphantly at the Restoration. In between, there are dangerous sea journeys aplenty, a love affair, a marriage to a man more than double her age and a raft of poignant personal tragedies. Francesca finishes by saying, I wanted to write her biography in 2023 to mark the 400th anniversary of her birth and 350 years since her death. Thanks, Francesca. Let's crack on. I am joined by Francesca Peacock, author and arts journalist, whose first book, Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish, is out on the 14th of September. Thank you so much for joining us, Francesca. It's so lovely to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. You've reached into the depths of history and you've snatched a hidden woman and dragged her into the light. So I think maybe what I should start with is how did you first encounter Margaret Cavendish and what made you say, yep, she's the one for me? I think it's such a good question. So I, at university, had written a dissertation on a group of women who actually came a bit after her. So they were all about mid-18th century and Margaret Cavendish dies at the late 17th century. And they'd all been writing about their gardens. And I got very into women writing about their gardens. I think it's quite a fruitful topic. It sounds really kind of ridiculous and a feat and it isn't at all because they often use it as a way to like write about changing philosophy. And I became very, very interested in this group of women. And I realised if you trace them all back another 50 years, the women who had been writing philosophy and thinking about, you know, women as a separate political class in a way. So kind of all interested in issues about gender and what happened to women and philosophy and everything. They all had Margaret Cavendish in common. She is, you know, a very, very early woman who did it all before them. And I became more and more interested in her as a figure. And I got loads of books out the library. And one biography was written in the 1950s. And it gets quite a lot of stuff wrong and is occasionally quite rude about her, you know, says she's not worth reading as a poet or a philosopher. So I'm like, okay, fine. Move on to the one from the 1980s, which is a lot better, but also, you know, very short, very academic, uh, not really for a general audience, and misses quite a few things out. And there was a brilliant one in about 2003 by Katie Whitaker, 
similarly was aimed at a very historian academic audience mm. and I just realized I thought this woman was somebody who you know everyone could enjoy she didn't necessarily have to be confined to academia she had an absolutely amazing life and I realized I really really wanted to write her life and then you know all of a sudden it starts happening as soon as you start telling people you're going to write a book they're like no nah, you're not really and then you're like, oh wait it's happening now <laughs> that's almost the exact opposite to me I tell everyone I'm writing a book and they say oh great brilliant that'll happen and then it doesn't because I get distracted <laughs> by another brilliant idea I've had for a book I was thinking about why I don't know that much about the whole period because the truth is I think the English Civil War in itself it's kind of a, a hidden history I could tell you way yeah. more about the American American Civil War, about the French Revolution, about the Russian Revolution. Partly it's because I come from an Irish Catholic family, so we didn't really have a dog in the fight. Like, neither of them are on our side. The Royalists were, and we certainly didn't like Cromwell. Cromwell's worse, yeah. Just reading your book, I just kept thinking, like, for example, Queen Henrietta Maria. Really fascinating, exciting character. And I wonder, have we spent too long making the English Civil War about the king and Cromwell and just ignoring everything else that went on. Is that the problem? Yeah, so that became slightly my point because the more I discovered it, and I've always been a 17th century fan, but it is kind of the hidden century in English history. I mean, we often know things that happen afterwards and the 18th century is much more recognisable as something that's consciously modern. You know, it's almost on a train. We all see a lot of history through the lens of the Victorians because it's just the way we're often taught things. We often skip from the Tudors, basically, Mm. to the 18th century and then Victorians, then the wars. And nobody ever really, really focuses on the 17th century. And it's this crazy time. So there's a huge war. Margaret Cavendish goes into exile as a royalist with Queen Henrietta Maria as one of her ladies-in-waiting. So this war, you know, tears the country apart and loads and loads. We didn't have a king on the throne for so many years. We were a republic, which is a key fact that often seems to be entirely forgotten. But it's an age of, like, radical politics. You have all of these groups, kind of proto-communists, the development of very early feminism. It's an age of radical ideas are circulating everything's up in the air and pretty much anything could have happened it was an age where you know ideas about science hadn't been solidified ideas about how the world worked hadn't been solidified so it felt like everything was up for grabs anything could have been real anything could have happened mm. um it's a really fascinating like melting pot and I, I became quite obsessed with it you can probably <laughs> tell yeah yeah now you describe margaret as being the epicenter of a new wave of women's writing education and thinking and what I really liked about your book is you don't just talk about Margaret you 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 put a lot of context in there of what other women were up to at that point and what life was like for women at that point so I wonder if you could maybe give us a little bit of context or our listeners a little bit of context here as into how were women writing at the time and why was what Margaret was writing not just exciting, but actually really different. So glad you noticed I put a lot about other women in because I really wanted to do that. I felt like I didn't want to leave other people, you know, because they weren't duchesses or something like behind in the dust. It has to be a biography of one woman (laughs) because of the natures of the thing, but I didn't want to leave people out. Um, So it's such a good question. So Margaret's born in 1623. She dies in 1673. So she's only alive for 50 years. She begins writing about the 1650s, but her first book is published in 1653 and it's called Poems and Fancies. And if we lived in London in 1653, all of the books were sold outside of St Paul's Cathedral before it burnt down, so the original one. And they were all in like little bookshops or little stalls. And it was always crowded with things. And if you walked along, you could pick up a copy of her book. And really radically, it said Poems and Fancies by Margaret Cavendish, at that point, the Marchioness of Newcastle. And that now sounds like, yeah, of course her name would be on her book. Why wouldn't it be? I mean, my name's on my book. If you write a book, your name's going to be on it, you know? But that is incredibly radical for the time. So 
In the 17th century, books necessarily did not have to be printed in order to be circulated. So a lot of the most famous works from this period, if we're thinking like John Donne's poems, George Herbert's poems, and lots of Philip Sidney's works, were circulated almost wholly in manuscript, which meant that they were copied out by hand, and people would put them in letters. Like, we had a very different poetic culture to what we have now, so people would read poetry like they were reading at the back of a cereal box or something, you know? So letters circulate with all of these things, and bound manuscripts circulate with poems in. But these works often weren't printed until after their authors had died, because print was seen as something which was stigmatised as kind of putting yourself on public show. So not something that somebody who was aristocratic or mm. thought of themselves particularly highly in a kind of private way would necessarily do. Margaret Cavendish comes in, A, as a woman, and B, as a writer, and publishes her work, which are bizarre poems about atoms, about fairies, about like the nature of modern science and how the world might work, alongside really personal poetry about her family life, her brother dying in the wars, her mother being a widow, really personal poetry as well, and publishes it to public view. She wasn't the first woman to do this, so there had been a few others. So one you might hear of is Amelia Lanya, who writes her book, very early 17th century, which she calls a translation of biblical stories. But in doing so, she actually kind of upends them. So in her version, Eve isn't responsible for the fall, but it's Adam instead. So she writes this brilliant poem and she writes it dedicated to female patrons. She'd wanted to get female patronage. We can't really tell if she did actually end up getting much attention from this book, but that maybe could be thought of as the first. Catherine Parr also did it very early in the 16th century. Um, but a slightly more privileged position doing so, um, although obviously things don't necessarily go particularly well for her. Um, but there are a couple of other women as well. So Lady Mary Roth writes a prose romance. She's the niece of Philip Sidney, writes a prose romance, which is kind of a Roman clef about like her dating life in London. Goes down very badly. Naturally, people hated it. But women writing really, really wasn't a common thing. If women did write, by and large, it remained in like family manuscripts. Families would look after it or they'd circulate it together. Uh, very, very, very rarely. You can count the examples examples almost on your hand had women published publicly before Margaret Cavendish and even more rarely had they done it with their name on the title page and also if they had been writing very very often it was books of things like prayers meditations so Catherine Parr was doing prayers and meditations Amelia Lanya's work was religious um and then very or books of like advice to mothers about how to raise your children and everything which is a lovely genre of book and I don't think we should overlook it I think it's a really important story in the history of women's literature but nobody had written really bold science and we're talking crazy science (laughs) it's like the pre-Newtonian age so everything sounds very weird to us now but people didn't necessarily know how the world worked and Margaret Cavendish writes science which kind of posits the fact that maybe God doesn't exist and everything's atoms. So it's so bold for, for an age in which everything boils down to religious religious fights as well. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I thought was really interesting when I was reading about Margaret's work that you point out about Margaret's work, and it reminded me a little bit of uh, some stuff I saw Lucy Worsley say about Agatha Christie. Because, for example, Margaret writes autobiographically, but she leaves a lot of information out. But yet that information is actually secretly hidden in a lot of her work because she was obsessed with storms. But that said, why wouldn't she be having been on a really quite exciting? It's not the right word. It was probably terrifying. But yeah, historically exciting uh, boat herself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I became really obsessed by this. The idea that you could kind of read between the lines and find things that she'd left out. Such a treat for a biographer because you do feel like you're inside somebody else's head trying to work out what it was she was thinking of. 
So yeah, the storms you're talking about. So civil war breaks out. Margaret, very, very young royalist, age 20, decides she's going to go be Henrietta Maria's lady-in-waiting. And to do that, she has to travel to Oxford, gets to Oxford, is incredibly, overwhelmingly shy to the point where everyone's asking her, like, why won't you talk? <laughs> what on earth is going on? And then uh, civil war gets worse and worse. Henrietta Maria gives birth possibly in a ditch or a shed. Things are not going particularly well, all very, very bad, has to leave the baby behind. And they get in a ship to travel to France because they really don't want the Queen to be captured. I mean, that would be the end of the Civil War. And so they get in a ship to France and the parliamentarian forces start bombing them. Well, not bombing them, but, you know, cannons and fire and everything. Margaret Cavendish writes about this moment repeatedly throughout the rest of her life. Women are always being wrenched away from their families, from countries, by horrible storms, either metaphorical storms or real storms. She even uses the storm as a metaphor for sexual assault on one occasion. So it's something that was like incredibly violent and really visceral for her. And when you see it prop up in works which aren't necessarily autobiographical, you're like, oh, she was thinking about that again. Yeah, Yeah. well, wouldn't she? Yeah. You've got a chapter about, again, I thought it was really interesting because it came with so much context about Margaret's, well, we're guessing she was infertile. She doesn't have any children. And it's a really interesting chapter because what leapt out at me is how much of the conversation around that felt strangely just like it was happening yesterday, especially if you look at things like the conversation about abortion in America. Yeah. Where we've had people actually actively, you know, people in in positions of power come out and say stuff like well you know if a woman gets raped she won't get pregnant which is actually something that they believed back when when margaret was writing and also the guilt that women feel and the responsibility that's put on women and all of that i thought that was really well done and really interesting that was my probably my favorite chapters to write in the book and the one that i always end up talking to people i think i spent many many nights in the pub boring people on the <laughs> topic of 17th century infertility so margaret never has children and her husband who she ends up meeting when she is in exile in france is a lot older than her and has had a wife and with his previous wife had had two sons and three daughters she writes in her autobiography this incredibly touching note where she says you know he married me because he wanted more heirs um she was a young woman he expected Mm. to be able to get more heirs out of her and then she couldn't at all so we have like doctor's records in manuscript of her like injecting a daily receipt for infertility which was a concoction of all sorts of horrible sounding things and writing in letters about it and she's always describing other women being pregnant and giving birth and she always does it in a way which is like mixed with sympathy so she's often in her plays childbirth is kind of the worst thing in the world that could happen to a woman there's extreme sympathy there and then she also writes letters like fictionalized letters to friends being like I hate pregnant women. They're just so (laughs) annoying. They're always making it about them and their babies. And I think you really have to take that with empathy, you know? Mm. It's obviously extreme loss for her. And the moment which kind of made me cry when I was writing the book is she writes being like, my husband never loved me any the less for not having children. And the first time I read that, I thought that's incredibly powerful. And then I read more and more sources. So there's a chapter in the book where so many women had fertility problems, as they do now. I mean, it's a very common thing. But nutrition was very bad then, you know, wars and childbirth. Children often died very, very, very young, which I think kind of gets skipped over as something that just happened in history. But it's incredibly heartbreaking. Mm. There's Every one of those is an individual heartbreak. But more and more women would write sentences in like spiritual memoirs or letters saying, you know, my husband never beat me for having a miscarriage. And you're like, you shouldn't have to record that. That means you were expecting it. And just incredibly heartbreaking. I actually cried a couple of times in the British Library Manuscripts Room, which isn't something you should admit because they didn't allow water in there. But yeah. Yeah, I agree. Because... It's that thing where you're like, oh, well, do you know what? Good for him. Because the framework is, you know, Henry VIII was 
killing his yeah. wives because because they didn't Especially. have babies. But then, yeah, you're right. You kind of check yourself and think, for God's sake, yeah, that's as yeah. it should be. And she writes these letters, like, calling her books her babies. Yeah. She always calls them, like, they've gone into labour with the publisher, which I, I quite like using in emails to my publisher. I think it really confuses them. Yeah. <laughs> so she did see her books as her children, and her husband even uses that image as well when he writes poems about her, which I think kind of is heartbreakingly lovely, really lovely. Yeah, it is. Recently, I was talking to Nicola Tallis about Lady Margaret Beaufort. And in some ways, I think their lives are quite similar. You know, they're round the edges of, of royalty. Their characters are forged in this sort of national conflict. You know, with Margaret, it's the War of the Roses. And, and here it's the, the English Civil War. But also, Nicola said to me that we look at Margaret Beaufort as being really dour, really, like, sort of miserable. And that's the image she got. The image we got of Margaret Cavendish is that she was because she's associated with fashion stuff, that she's really frivolous. And, of course, there was another side to her that, that's hidden. So, yeah. I, yeah, I thought they were quite a sort of interesting mirror character of, of each other. Tell me about her her fashion, her high fashion yeah. stakes. It's so much fun. So this is, I think, probably also what drew me to writing about her initially. Um, so when I first, the first research I did was actually in uh, the Bodleian in Oxford everything's quite dry you're looking through letters you're turning things over and there's this letter that a young man wrote to his father and it is the most insane letter I've ever read in an archive because it starts off and he goes I'm so sorry dad I've married someone without your permission I hope you don't mind the letter ends with him being like really sorry about the whole marriage thing again can I have some money and then in the middle just to like pack out the bad news for his father he goes why don't I update you on some of the gossip in London and he says Margaret Cavendish is the pageant now discoursed on like the only thing that's being discussed in London and he describes how at a performance of her husband's play The Humorous Lovers in 1667 everyone thought the play was by her but it wasn't she turns up she's sitting in a box so at the top of the theatre and she's got a dress which is cut to below the level of her nipples which she's accessorised to rouge them it's a very common thing and then put tassels on them as well so she's sitting with her tits out and with nipple tassels on absolutely amazing and that wasn't really something that would have been done in public then it might have been done in private but definitely not in public definitely not in the theatre with your husband's play I don't know if you get away with it in the theatre now to be honest I know he also claims that she entered the theatre in a chariot pulled by eight white bulls. And that's the point where you're like, I'm not entirely sure this is true gossip. But it is amazing, yeah. Yeah. So she was always known for having really bizarre fashion. And in her autobiography, which is she writes um, later on in her life, it's quite a brief document and it focuses on weird things. But one of the things she focuses on is how much she always loved clothes, designed her own clothes, liked them more than toys when she was a ch- child. And every single source, especially in her later years, after she's returned from exile after the Restoration, She's kind of known more for her crazy fashion and for being almost, you know, I think at some point I've called her a 17th century it girl. She's like a society figure who people crowded up to see or like her coach was always followed by huge crowds who were just obsessed by the spectacle she presented of bizarre clothes, always had face patches on. She even gets told off at one point for dressing her servants all in velvet, affected little black caps. This was this. Wow. Can we talk about feminism? Because quite often the word feminism is is banded around with regard to women at a time when, I mean, we're not even quite sure what feminism is now some of the time, let alone, you know, at a point where it was a very flexible idea. Where did Margaret sit, do you think, in the sort of the history of women's rights? 
Yeah, so I make a claim for her that she's one of England's uh, earliest feminist philosophers and thinkers. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and a lot of time thinking about terminology because uh, it's a very common thing to say, you know, you can't use the term feminist prior to about, you know, when we start having codified feminist movements yeah. and everything. And I didn't want to call her a proto-feminist necessarily because I feel like it puts all of history in like a box before today's contemporary perfect feminism. Yeah. You know, we could all be proto-feminists in 50 years if things change, you know. Yeah. And I would like to think that maybe that doesn't work. So I tried to use the term more inclusively. And although she wouldn't have known the term feminist, her work is an incredible corpus of writing dedicated to thinking about women as a separate political entity, a separate social entity, women as a category which is distinct from men and who had different problems and needed different rights and solutions. So she's always writing about marriage, why marriage is a worse deal for women than it is for men. It's like her favourite theme. Her plays are all about that. One of her most amazing plays is about women retreating from the world and all living together in a kind of sapphic harmony. Unfortunately, it goes wrong because a man gets in. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And she's always writing about this. And she is very, very, very much obsessed with the idea that women can be powerful and women can have agency and rights and can write as well, crucially. So she writes about women fighting in wars. She writes about women setting up their own society where there are no men or if there are men, they're distinctly subservient to women. So I... I think she's really interesting as a thinker. And this comes across in her like fiction. She writes brilliant work, the first work of science fiction called The Blazing World, in which um, this amazing woman called the Empress manages this entire other world. And she's absolutely amazing. So, yes, I think it's kind of difficult because obviously there are limits to how radical she definitely was, because whilst all of this is going on, she's a royalist. So she's like mixing extreme conservatism if not reactionary ideas occasionally about the great chain of being she's occasionally very snobbish but she's mixing this all it's all shot through with really really well thought through coherent ideas about women and their place in society she isn't you know clamoring for women to have the vote nor is she clamoring for a lot of things that you know we fight for now but very very early instance of a woman thinking of herself as separate to men and being somehow hard done by by male society i think she's absolutely brilliant and should be better studied for that and yeah more read for it yeah yeah, well said. And well said because that was constantly interrupted by me about to sneeze and then my cat invaded the pitch. And he carried on and I was I'm really impressed. I like your cat. <laughs> I have one last question for you. We're speaking in the middle of August, so there's about a month to go before your book is out. Now, you actually review book and this is your debut going into the world. Are you at your baby, I suppose, going into the world? How do you feel about that? Does what you do the rest of the time make you think it will be fine? Or does it make you think, oh, Jesus Christ, it could be awful? I think it makes me think the opposite. I think I'm quite lucky because I have seen it happen to a lot of people. Yeah. But also, you know, I've panned people's books and now I feel really guilty <laughs> because the nerves are insane. Um, yes, I think I'm very nervous and also very excited for it to be out in the world. It's been kind of, you know, something which has existed on my laptop or existed in proofs and bound copies for ages, but it's only actually just come back from the printer yesterday. Um, so very excited, but incredibly nervous. And I think, you know, having reviewed a lot of books, you are very aware things cannot go well occasionally. And now I'm pretty confident it'll be fine because like I say, it was, it was really interesting. And it is, like you say, it's a really easy read. It does move you along. It doesn't feel, you know, obviously academic in any way. It feels very accessible. And she's really interesting. There is a lot of context around her. And I think in in this period in particular, that's that's really important because, like I say, even I, who is 
obsessed with history, stumbles around a bit. Made me want to read a bit more. I did actually go off and read a bit about about female highwaymen because of this. Oh, I loved including that tiny little footnote in it. And I was like, right, that's that's on the list of things I need to read up about. Yeah, it was initially far longer. And then I realised it was entirely tangential to the book. I just really thought it were really cool. Oh, well, maybe there's an idea for another book. Do you have an idea for another book? And if you do, can you tell us about it? I can't necessarily say what the idea is necessarily, but it's more to do with like feminist um, historical women's writing. So very much in the same vein, just moving a few years. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Francesca. This has been excellent. It's so lovely. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.